Hi, you're listening to Behind the Headlines, a weekly news talk show hosted by the Express News Group, publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com, and featuring distinguished journalists from the East End to discuss what's news on the North and South Forks of Long Island. I'm Bill Sutton, the Managing Editor of the Express News Group. I'm joined by my co-host, Annette Hinkle, the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Annette. Hey, Bill. How you doing? And our illustrious panel this week includes Denise Civiletti, editor and publisher, editor and publisher of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning, Bill. Ambrose Clancy, editor of the Shelter Island Reporter, part of the Times Review Media Group. Good morning, Ambrose. Good morning, Bill. And Jamie Buffalino, a reporter for the East Hampton Star. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. So we thought we would start talking this morning about the recent um, change in the CDC mask guidelines, a reversal this week as uh, numbers start to grow and the Delta variant starts to um, expand those numbers a bit. And I guess that, that Delta variant is pretty scary in, in what it can do. And even people who are vaccinated, there are reports of some breakthrough um, uh, infections. Um, and all that, and I'm just wondering, you guys, how you how you feel? Is this going to change your your um, your choice to wear masks or not wear masks? I know the CDC um, guidelines have changed, but I think uh, Governor Cuomo has said that he's not going to reinstitute the mask ban. Um, but I'll also note that Suffolk County was listed on a CDC map um, that I saw in an, an NPR story. Um, that Suffolk is is now a substantial risk level, which would require people to wear masks again indoors and possibly even outdoors, even uh, vaccinated people. So what do you guys think? Are you wearing your masks again? What are you doing? I, I actually already started wearing the mask before they announced this because um, just seeing this variant and uh, what's going on and looking at uh, the numbers here and also, having a family member that has an autoimmune disease, I just, you know, I started wearing masks when I go into stores and uh, town hall meetings and, and such. And um, I intend to continue. Um, I think, you know, there's, uh, it's interesting because uh, Suffolk, you know, Suffolk's obviously a really big county. Right. And uh, there are various uh, hamlets that are of, uh, more concerned than others as far as the circulation of the virus uh, goes. And um, two of them, well, they, they break it down by zip code for it, the New York State Department of Health, uh, which is a continuing annoyance to me. I don't know why they can't get more specific than that. But uh, the river, the 11901 zip code, which takes in hamlets in Southampton town and Riverside, Flanders and Northampton, and of course, the Riverhead hamlet. And then uh, 11933 have um, vaccination rates barely above 50%. Um, vaccination rates in Mastic Shirley are like 40, in the low 40s. Um, so it's a serious problem, and it's a serious problem for healthcare, uh, you know, for the hospitals in, in, this, in this region, um, because they're the ones that are going to bear the brunt of it. Um, got an op-ed from the executive director of Peconic Bay Medical Center yesterday that I posted this morning talking about that, urging people to get vaccinated and, you know, saying we don't want to go through what we went through last year. Right. Um, there's just, I mean, you know, the same people that don't want to wear masks don't want to get vaccines, it seems. And um, it's, it's setting up for, a, you know, a, a rough time, especially I think as the weather gets colder, um, an important thing to remember, too, is that the more the virus circulates, the more it mutates and the more variants develop. So, like, who knows what comes next at this point? Um, you know, I think, I think Joe, Joe Biden. I'm sorry. I agree ahead, with, uh, with uh, Denise completely. But the, the real tragedy of this whole thing is that it has been politicized, uh, you know, a matter of exactly. matter of public health and public safety and people's lives has been politicized. Um, which is kind of astonishing. Um, the, you know, on Shelter Island, for example, it, it, the, the town board and the community, you know, really stepped up and uh, approached herd immunity or if it was there already, they had, they had claimed a few months ago and everybody, most everybody, not everybody, um, 
went along with uh, masking up when you're inside. Um, I, I, I just don't quite get how it works that you can uh, tell people that putting a mask on when you go into a store is uh, taking your away your rights as an American. I, I don't get it, but some people buy it. So, <laughs> so, so Joe Biden is recommending that uh, municipalities start offering a hundred bucks to anybody that gets a vaccine. I'm, you know, I, and I, they were doing the lottery tickets early on too. And I, I think it's a, a good idea. I don't know that hundred bucks is going to make a, a difference, but you know, not to make a joke out of it, but I keep wondering, where's my lottery ticket? Where's my hundred bucks yeah, for exactly. getting a vaccine early on? You, know, maybe, you won the lottery when you didn't get COVID. I guess that's that's the way you got to look at it, right? I mean, like, yeah. what's a hundred bucks going to do for people who believe that the vaccine is putting microchips in their body? You know, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you deal with that. But, that's but they have, there yeah. has been an uptick in the number of people who have been getting vaccinated uh, yeah. based on uh, various promotions that they, the governments have done, both local and federal. So it's kind of hard to argue. I do get it. It sounds ridiculous. But uh, and I've heard people say, you know, those who are vaccinated should get the hundred dollars and yeah. maybe entice the unvaccinated that way. But, I, think big, I think the biggest um uh, thing that's going to encourage people is seeing other people that they know and love dying from this virus. You know, yeah. that's what everybody's saying is like, you know, their last dying breath. Some of these patients are like, can I get the vaccine now? I mean, sorry. It's a little it's late. late. You know, so I think yeah. that that's, you know, as, as more of the stories come out of people who wish that their family members had gotten it, um, which you're starting to hear now, you know, I was wondering why they weren't doing more of those kind of national stories earlier, you know, um, people who regret. Um, so I think that, but, you know, of course, there's certain news outlets that won't ever do those stories because it doesn't jive with their. Um, so hope. is there is there a difference between anti-vaxxers and people who are just still reluctant? I mean, is, is there still an opportunity to to try to convince some of those people who haven't been vaccinated or have been reluctant to be vaccinated to now go get the vaccine? And, and I think to Annette's point, the people that are getting really sick and that are dying now are people who who have, you know, from this Delta variant are people who um, who were never vaccinated, people who were vaccinated and get the breakthrough um, infection may get sick, but they're not going to get sick enough from what I'm seeing anyway, not get sick enough to go to the hospital or, or to die. I mean, is there a difference? I mean, there's certainly going to be a certain percentage of, of a militant population who are who are saying, you know, I'm never going to get vaccinated. You can't force me to get vaccinated. And, and to Ambrose's point, it's really political. Um, but is there a way to convince the, you know, the the other percentage of people who've just been reluctant so far? I think it's going to be one on one. I think it's, you know, trying to get people to shift their belief system offline and away from um, the, the so-called news and back to their primary care physicians. I mean, it used to be if you had a health issue, you would go ask your doctor. Uh-huh. And I think the problem is a lot of people are not talking to their doctors about about their issues. And I think that once you, you know, if you can shift people to get back to asking the advice of their physicians, that that might shift it, you know, but it needs to, it seems like it needs to be a one-on-one personal kind of discussion that you have with somebody you trust. Yeah, and the anti- I think there's the always kind of- uh, the anti-vax, uh, movement is so strong that you can read about people in Arkansas who are going to get vaccinated, but pleading with uh, the people there not to let anyone know that they're getting vaccinated and going in with disguises because, and that's that's a real fear um, yeah. that uh, they would be ostracized in their community or within a, their political party. And uh, again, it's uh, it's just completely baffling, I think. Well, I think it really shows the power of propaganda. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. you've got uh, let's you know, let's face it. And uh, you, you've got a major uh, cable. So faux news network, I call it faux news. But, you know, every single night they're pumping out propaganda on this. And as long as you've got Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and company, you know, making putting out false information and and propaganda about the vaccine and about the virus, which they've been doing since almost day one. Yeah. Uh, you know, this it, people are being inculcated with this false information. And, you know, thanks to the wonders of social media, uh, we all know what, what the role that that's played in, in spreading false information about this. So 
I, you know, I think that, you know, obviously there's no control over that, but I think that's like square squarely lies on the shoulder of people who do that. I, I think what we're, you know, facing today. Also, I think that to the extent that people who are unvaccinated tend to be, you know, and according to the New York State Department of Health, black and brown communities, you know, some people may not really have a primary care provider to speak with them hmm. either. You know, um, yeah. that's how do you address that? Um, and and there, there are still members of, of the medical community. I watched a, a bit on, on one of the national news channels the, you know, the other night that that there are still healthcare workers who are in that no vaccine camp. And, and you got to wonder how that filters down to um, to, to patients and communities and, and all that. These are our nurses and other healthcare workers who don't feel comfortable with the vaccine and, and say that they're not going to get it. So I don't know how you get to, you get beyond, you get beyond that propaganda. Um, yeah, what, especially if you're talking about somebody who's a respiratory therapist refusing to get the vaccine. It's like, I don't know anything. Mind boggling. <laughs> yeah. and, and you figure they've all seen the worst of it. I mean, the, oh, yeah. you know, last yeah. spring, they, you yeah. know, uh, what as 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 the media what 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 can we do or what is our responsibility to help um break through some of of that that cloudiness or that propaganda as denise called it to to help people to to make a decision i know we're we're planning a a virtual um a virtual express sessions event in a couple of weeks to talk about um, vaccines and, and people who don't want to get vaccines and stuff. So I think, you know, we'll try to address it at that point, have some healthcare professionals on and hopefully also some some people who are reluctant to get the vaccine and kind of kind of um, shake it out that way. But what else should we be doing, if, if anything? I think we should be doing shot of the week and maybe um, get someone to agree, you know, every week, try to find a new person who is getting the vaccine and tell their story a little bit about why they're getting it now. And, you know, may really personalize who's getting it and why getting the vaccine and why I think that would be kind of a fun feature. If they're not um, wearing a hat and a mask like Ambrose said, right? <laughs> yeah. If they don't have a funny glasses and mustache. Right. <laughs> um, well, that's, a great, that's a great idea. Yeah. Also, it's just, it's basic, basically just uh, um, doing our job and telling the truth and, yeah. and trying to counteract uh counteract the propaganda that's out out there. Yeah. And the conspiracy theories, you know, there is so much because it's a new version of a vaccine, the mRNA, people have uh, have latched on to this thing that it can control your DNA. And, uh, you know, just explaining that, which I'm sure we all have uh, early on during this whole pandemic, but, you know, maybe it just needs more explanation in that regard but i do think there's going to be a solid uh cohort of people that just aren't going to get vaccinated for either political reasons or uh conspiratorial reasons or something and it's just a matter of getting as close to herd immunity as possible and, and hopefully that you know that makes a difference i'm i'm um, trepidatious about about the fall, as you know, Denise said, the weather starts to get colder, and those numbers. I mean, they're they're growing now, and, and what happens in you know in September, October, and then to the holidays again. I, I think we all kind of thought everything would be over by now, especially when they first brought the vaccine out. We were all looking at you know kind of an end to the crisis in the summer, and it just uh, just wants to keep going. Um, you're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIW-FM 88.3. I'm Bill Sutton, Managing Editor of the Express News Group, joined by my co-host Annette Hinkle, Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. Our panel today, Jamie Buffalino from the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Ambrose Clancy from the Shelter Island Reporter. Ambrose, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about climate change. And you guys did a fantastic editorial this week talking about climate change and, and the impact that it's having on um, on, on your community and uh, and the need for people to kind of kind of wake up a little bit. You want to talk a little bit about the edit? Uh, yeah, well, thanks, Bill. Um, yeah, it was uh, the lead of the editorial is, um, you know, how many times does somebody have to walk into a door before they realize that their nose is broken time and time again? Um, and we, you look at 
Um, for example, in Shelter Island in particular, you know, the North Ferry uh, had raised its uh, loading dock on the uh, Greenport side um, because of uh, higher tides and rising seawater. And on the other side, on the North Haven side for South Ferry, the state put a lot of money into raising roads, raising uh, the loading ramp there. Um, and it's just, you know, it's in your face every day. And the editorial is talking about um, if there are people who are climate change deniers and they hold public office or they're vague about it, they should be voted out, you know, uh, immediately next time around, that there should be an effort to uh, put this uh, as the crisis of our times. Um, older people like me um, and uh, my cohort, it's not, doesn't seem to be really a crisis, but we're not thinking clearly. We're not thinking about people who are 20, people who are 30, who are really going to be hit hard by this. Um, and kids of, you know, 10, um, they're going to be, they talk about a crisis. They're going to be in a real crisis and it's all around us. It's um, look at 100 degree temperatures in the Pacific Northwest, um, wildfires. It's, uh, it's, it's staring us in the face, which is the headline. And, and, and the, the effects of those wildfires, which were evident locally last week with the hazy exactly. skies, everybody comes out to, to the east end for, you know, for the blue skies, sunshine and, and beach weather. But, you know, but it's been it's been hazy for for a, a few, you know, for over a week now. Really um, astonishing. Yeah, saw, saw the evidence of the um, the uh, discolored sun and, and moon rises and, and and all that. And you know, I, I think it, you're, you're right. I mean, for for people of our age, it's it it seems less immediate. But when you see those effects now, it's it's scary, and you got to wonder what you know what we're going to be seeing over the next few years. I think it's interesting that Shelter Island is sort of, you know, you, you read about like Fiji and some of the South Pacific islands that have been dealing with this and people sort of turning a blind eye. But I feel like in a way, Shelter Island is our Fiji because um, of the fact that it is an island that is served by ferries that have to use ramps that are going underwater. Um, so I think that's what's interesting is I bet there's a lot of people out here that don't even realize that Shelter Island is dealing with just something as basic as getting your car on a ferry and how sea level rise is affecting that. Because, you know, I hate to say it, but where I live, I'm about 200 feet um, in elevation, about the highest point in East Hampton. So I'm gonna be okay for a while. And I may even have oceanfront property in a few years. But that go, that being said, it's um, interesting to really pay attention to places like Sag Harbor and Shelter Island, because they're the first ones who are starting to see this. And um, I, you know, I, I think we've talked about this, but I don't feel like there's really been much in the way of municipalities getting involved in talking about sea level rise and, and that sort of issue. Um, and I just wonder, have any of you seen that where the municipalities are starting to seriously address dealing with sea level rise or, you know, you've dealt with saltwater intrusion, but um, has it been mostly, you know, with the ferry, the ferry figuring out how to raise their ramps, but what are the, the, the municipalities doing in terms of all this? Well, in East Hampton, there was a discussion not too long ago about a managed retreat in Montauk, where that's going to be another place that is severely affected by uh, sea level rise. So, um, but lately, you know, I mean, I think COVID has kind of uh, taken away from that a little bit, but I do think both residents and uh, people in government are extremely highly attuned to environmental concerns here, but it's a matter of figuring out what there is to do about it. That's, you know, cost effective and just effective. <laughs> you know? yeah. There's, you know, it's interesting that the big infrastructure bill that's kind of making its way into the uh, sausage grinder in Washington. I was just reading today of, of the things that were compromised out of this bill, and a lot of them were environmental. A lot of them were climate change um, ideas. Some some climate ideas, climate change ideas, are still in there, but that seems to be um, a compromise going for the Republicans who don't want it. They want other things. The Democrats, just to get it done, are going along with it. And like I said, I think that really could be short sighted, uh, and. 
Democrats in the House, especially progressive Demo young Democrats, are still you know pushing like crazy to keep keep these um, environmental um, issues in these bills. You're absolutely right. You know, um, so downtown Riverhead, as we all know, um, is you know along the riverfront, kind of underwater on a regular basis, um, mm -hmm. and um, the town has. Um, begun sort of aggressively developing that shoreline, I think it's fair to say, with these um, apartment buildings um, that, um, you know, the parking area underneath one of them, that's the one that's right next to the downtown Grangebel Park, um, has water come up in there, you know, sort of frequently. That uh, Heidi Bear Way along the riverfront, the, uh, the riverfront um, roadway there is underwater whenever there's a high tide that coincides with, a, you know, a good rain. Um, and of course, when we had a, st a storm like Sandy, you know, the water made its way to Main Street from mm. the riverfront. So um, one of the first things that happened when Supervisor Yvette Aguiar uh, took office was um, she met with um, Representative Zeldin and um, he uh, secured uh, the Army Corps of Engineers to come to Riverhead to look at the and assess the situation with the riverfront. And they've done some kind of study. I mean, it really hasn't been publicly discussed very much, but um, apparently we're going to get an update on that when next week when um, the town, uh, there's another town square design um, uh, virtual meeting. Um, and so we're going to hear about the, what the Army Corps of Engineers uh, has has to say about uh, dealing with the flooding situation downtown, because it's a real issue. Well, obviously, it's going to get worse. You look at those maps where it shows the, the flooding as the tide rises over the next several decades. And, uh, you know, we've got a serious problem. But then, you know, our Army Corps of Engineers tends to address those things with uh, construction projects and seawalls and things like that. And right. everybody knows those are not necessarily <laughs> the best way to deal with those things. So, right. um, I think, you know, I think so. what's also interesting is you're, you're dealing with like uh, issues of climate change meeting like historic preservation. I remember in Sac Harbor, there was an issue where um, a homeowner wanted to raise his house, a historic house, wanted to raise right. it in order to get, um, you know, FEMA wouldn't insure his house unless he you know, put it up high and like, so he built like a berm to put his house up. And, um, and so that was what FEMA wanted, but then you had the ARB and the other neighbors around who were screaming bloody murder because now all the water was being channeled to their house. So I think that's going to be another interesting thing, especially in historic downtown areas where historic preservation and flood mitigation don't always mesh. Um, so I think that's going to be something that's going to become an interesting battleground for that sort of thing. And, and there's still going to be resistance from the community, right? I mean, similar, similar to, you know, to, to vaccination arguments, there are still people who are, who are um, claiming that, you know, that this is bad science or a hoax or, or, or whatever, even, even though the evidence is right in front of them, like Ambrose said in, you know, in, 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 in the editorial that, that door knocking you in, in the head all the time. Um, there are still people that, that, that don't see a, a, a need or an immediate need. Yep. Sadly. So how do, so, so again, I'll ask the same question. I mean, is, is other than, 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 you know, covering the, you know, the, the municipal efforts here. And, you know, I know that the uh, fire Island of Montauk, the army Corps is, is hoping to, to begin that, um, you know, this, this year. And, and I, and I think, you know, that'll make some changes in, in Montauk as well, but um, you know, as, as the media, is there more we can be doing to, you know, to um, to shine a light on this and highlight this and, you know, write editorials like uh, Shelter Island, um, you know, um, wrote this week and, and help help people understand the, the immediate need of this. Well, we had, As Ambrose uh, said before, thing, illuminate it, tell the truth. One thing yeah. we did uh, this week is that the building department on Shelter Island just got an electric vehicle um, for building department personnel to go out and do their rounds and check things out. And we put that on the front page. Um, and not only that is that the police department has been looking at that electric vehicle and they're, um, they're considering 
getting a police cruiser, police vehicle uh, that is electric. And we mentioned, we prom- we put that prominently in the paper, as well as the new report about uh, flooding in the, within the next 20, 30 years. Mm. Uh, we, we hit that pretty hard. So uh, we're continuing to do that. And Jamie, East Hampton Town has, has, um, has made pledges to be carbon neutral, um, you know, by a, yeah. by a certain point is making a lot of efforts that way too, correct? Yeah, no, they do. They have a solar field. They, they're trying to really incorporate it into uh, every decision that they're making. So that is Im- impressive. Um, I wanted to, I was thinking about um, when Annette was talking about real estate a couple of years ago, the organization of concerned scientists uh, did a estimation of all the money that would be lost in real estate based on sea level rise. And one of the things that they recommended is that the insurance, flood insurance rates incorporate updated estimates of how much the sea is supposed to rise, which isn't uh, happening right now. And, uh, you know, that would greatly influence uh, the way people view real estate. And I mean, it would be a particular concern for for this area because uh, so many expensive houses are along the water. Um, but there is a way to get those those uh, issues out in front and uh, let people know that this is going to really affect all of us. And it kind of hit them in the wallet a little bit too. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that seems to drive a lot of change. All right, let's, uh, let's move on. Denise, you wanted to talk about... Um, a proposal in front of the Riverhead Town Board to ban the sale of commercially bred dogs and cats by pet stores and instead encourage um, the the adoption adoption of uh, shelter animals, rescue animals. Would the pet stores then, do you think, um, try to bring those those adopt those rescued animals in, in, into stock and, and try to switch over that way or, or, or well, just going to put businesses out of business? I mean, if if this is adopted, if this proposed code change is adopted and if it uh, withstands uh, what I'm certain will be eventual legal scrutiny, um, the, um, the pet stores will only be allowed to uh, offer for sale animals that come from shelters, humane societies, and uh, nonprofit rescue groups. And they're going to have to have uh, certificates of source to, on premises to prove that. So, um, you know, it it will certainly fundamentally change their business model. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, it re- I think it remains to be seen what happens with this, but um, you it, know, it would they, put them the, put them in competition with with the municipal animal shelters and and ARF and and all those that are giving these dogs away not not for free but for a very small fee comparatively. Um, so that that would be interesting, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how that actually <clears throat> plays out, um, but you know, it's uh, would the shelters yeah. be a pipeline or, you know, I don't understand how, because there are so many organizations that rescue dogs from like Puerto Rico and in the South mm-hmm. and stuff. So for a business to be able to do that, I mean, I, I think it's a great idea. I'm not sure how it works exactly. Though. I, yeah. I don't, I, I agree with you. I'm not sure how it plays out. Uh, you know, it's, um, are they, it, uh, Will will the will the shelters allow adoption? Like how to like would they be like middle like brokers for shelters? Right, um, right. I feel like know, that I could see that yeah. happening. You know, but uh, you know we do have. I mean, well, so in Riverhead, there's um, I think Petco only has animals that are shelter animals. You can adopt cats there. Um, I don't know about dogs, but I don't think they sell commercially bred animals and. Um, and uh, but we do have an independent pet store, an independently owned pet store in Riverhead. Um, and so that I don't know. I tried to I reached out to them, didn't succeed in getting a call back um, to try to get a comment from them. But um, well, you know, I, I know that, on, so, so there was there was proposed state legislation, I think, a couple of years in a row that would that would kind of follow the same model and, and you know, prohibit 
um, the sale of, of commercially bred bred dogs. And I think we had spoke to the people in the in the is it is it an Aquabog the the pet store and yes you know and, that's and their argument is that with um, you know with with bred dogs you're you're going to get a better quality um, animal because they're bred for certain. Um, certain qualities and attributes and, and stuff and and that you're going to, you know, it's going to be a safer adoption. You would you would have some kind of, um, you know, guarantee on the animal's health, that, that type of thing. And I think that's been their argument. I, I don't know. Look, so and, and, and there are people that that, that want that. And, and so you have to consider that, too. I, well, the you know, sponsor I'll, I'll, of this bill, uh, Councilman uh, Ken Rothwell, who's, who brought this bill forward, uh, he said, you know, you can step people who want a purebred dog can still purchase a purebred dog. They just need to do it uh, directly with a, a responsible breeder. Uh, the, the pet stores, he says, um, source their animals from more often than not from these large commercial breeders that abuse animals in the process uh, puppy, of puppy mills. creating the so-called puppy mills in the process of creating their, their stock uh, or, you know, sourcing their stock. That's how these, these, factory farms work basically. So um, that's his answer to that. Um, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, we'll see what happens with this. I, I mean, I've always had, you know, I've always, I've had a few dogs and I've always adopted them from the shelters. And I mm-hmm. personally, my personal opinion, I, I, I wouldn't understand why, why somebody would not want to do that. These are dogs that, that, that need homes that have been, you know, abandoned or have been abused or, or whatever. And, and it certainly for me, it makes sense to, um, you know, to, to kind of help the shelters out and help me out at the, at the same time and bring them in that way. But, um, you know, people have, people have their own preferences, I guess. And I, and they're, you know, their dogs are considered property and a commodity. So Bill, do we know, is are, have there ever been any pet stores in the Southampton town or East Hampton town region that have sold dogs? Cause I mean, I know we there, have a little pet store here, there, in, but it was always just small, like tank animals. There was, there was one in Hampton Bays a, a number of years ago, maybe even, maybe even 10 years ago. And it was, um, the, um, neighbors complained and there were often, uh, picketers outside the store. And I think the, the, <clears throat> the business just kind of, I don't know if they moved or they went out of business and it just became too difficult for them to, to, to operate just because people were so, um, adamantly opposed to you know to their business so there's no legislation on the books neither southampton or east hampton town about um pet stores selling dogs does that even exist not that not that i know of but again there, there was you know fred fred thiel state assemblyman had, had introduced similar very similar state legislation um i don't think it was successful for you know you know two years in a row i wonder if that'll come up at some point i mean riverhead's probably i, I apparently trying to to, you know, to get under the table here and, and to get something passed before the state can or, or it's, the state. It's interesting. I mean, like the state Senate bill passed a, um, a, a unanimously uh, a bill to um, complete, you know, a complete ban on, on the sale of uh, dogs at, and, and, and pet stores. Um, but for whatever reason, it's uh, that hasn't moved and it didn't move this session. It's it's in a committee. Um you know, Suffolk County in 2014, I think it was, passed a law that um, regulated the sale of, of uh, dogs from uh, pet stores or by pet stores. And that law said that um, the, the stores were not were, had to show that they w- did not source their animals from um, a breeder that had any recent. And I forget how that was defined, but um, U.S. Department of Agriculture violations. So that was their way of, of getting at that. And I think uh, that was something that uh, now Supervisor Jay Schneiderman was uh, one of the sponsors of back then, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see where this goes. It's, it's going to be interesting, I think. So. Well, it is. There's certainly a need to, to regulate it, I guess. And, and either option would regulate that and just kind of guarantee, you know, not, not only for um, you know, for, for purchasers of the dogs, but for the, for dogs themselves that, you know, that it, it would, I think the intention is to, to, to slow down and to put out of business some of these uh, so-called, um, you know, puppy mills that, that are, that are perhaps less scrupulous than, um, than, as you said, Denise, individual breeders who, who may have a history of, 
um, raising animals and caring for them well and, you know, and providing, um, you know, these dogs to, to people who want, you know, want that kind of animal. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIW 88.3. I'm Bill Sutton, Managing Editor of the Express News Group, joined by my co-host Annette Hinkle. Um, our guests today are Jamie Buffalino from the East Hampton Star, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Ambrose Clancy from the Shelter Island Reporter. Jamie, let's move on to uh, cell phone coverage in East Hampton and this proposed town-owned cell tower in Springs, which um, has drawn the ire of uh, neighbors near the proposed tower who um, had a backyard <laughs> meeting last week that um, that was pretty extensive, I guess, in their their opposition to the tower. What's going on there? Yeah. So this hits uh, home for me because I live in Springs and uh, have often had to drive to do phone interviews from my uh, cell phone. Um so there's no, everybody agrees there's a lack of, there's a need for cell phone coverage. You know, the question of citing a tower has been an ongoing issue. There's an existing tower at the, at the fire department nearby, which is in uh, the neighbors next to it don't want it there because it, the fall zone, uh, it's within the fall zone of property, residential properties. Ex and the people- Explain, uh, explain what the fall zone is, Jamie. So a fall zone is where, so if anything collects on the tower, I mean, it involves the tower falling over a little bit, but that's a very rare happenstance. I, it's more about anything that, any debris or ice that can collect on the tower and fall uh, off of it, then becomes a hazard for a house or any public uh, space in the so, area. So there's got to be a, a setback from the tower. There is a setback. Yes, there has to be a setback. And um, so there's a setback issue on the at the fire department site. And there is a setback issue, a smaller one at this new site that the neighbors don't want. Um, uh, so really, they they. The, the town was looking to put it on an open space on this former or this Girl Scout camp lot, and that was uh, turned down by the people who own it. Um, so this site became the next possibility. And, um, you know, the fact is that people just don't want this for because of real estate issues, because of safety issues. And there's also there's a little bit of a, you know, kind of the. Um, misinformation plays here too because you know the fact that radio uh emissions really have been have not been proven to be harmful from these uh towers but people fear the worst of, about living near them and suspect that a lot of illnesses that can come from but that just doesn't happen to be the case but you know i think you know we've seen it in northwest woods uh that people it affect it does affect land value you know people even if it there isn't a health hazard the perception that there is will affect uh the cost of your house you know and whether people want to live there and stuff so there is a lot to take into account um but it is another case of not in my backyard ism uh we also read, didn't we also read that the the <laughs> thing that can affect real estate values is having really really bad cell service i feel like that's the other side of that equation is that houses yeah, that have bad point. cell service in the time of COVID have not been as um, highly priced because, you know, the, the skyons of um, Wall Street can't do their job from their home with no cell service. So. And it's not even a matter of just convenience either. It's a matter of safety. And, and I think they're, you know, they're, they're looking for, you know, for extensions to, you know, to police and fire, um, you know, radio equipment as well. But I, I know that, um, you know, the, the, you know, one person talked about it in certain areas. What if, if there's a car accident and, and a child is injured and you can't get through to 911 because of, of spotty or no cell service, that that's really a community issue. And, and maybe that trumps, um, you know, some of this nimbyism about the location of, of the cell tower. I think that's pretty scary. You know, in Shelter yeah. Island, Ed, there was an issue. Again, it was uh, putting up a, a cell tower uh, at a firehouse. 
and it uh, it dragged on for quite a while. <clears throat> uh, residents nearby um, asking lots of questions and and trying to throw up roadblocks. Um, eventually, it it was all resolved amicably, and it's, it's still. And the, the fire department had made, and the police department had made the point that it's it's a uh, an issue of public safety. And just what you were talking about, Bill. Um, and yet, the uh, cell phone service on Shelter Island, like all of the East End, is spotty, to put it mildly. It, it's amazing that this day and age, and, and the reliance everybody has on, <clears throat> on, the, on this technology, that there are still areas where we we can't, you know, that that people can't use their cell phones, or can't use data, can't uh, you know get on their computers or, or, or whatever. It's just it's just amazing to me. And then, well, so, I wonder why we don't satellite. Why don't we use satellite technology for cell phones? I mean, it seems like we got a ton of satellites up there, but why are we still relying on towers? I'm wondering. Hmm. Well, I, I think the next wave is really smaller towers, like a, yeah. a series of smaller ones. <clears throat> but I don't think we're quite at that stage yet. And also for emergency communications, you kind of need as high, you need to go as high as possible to reach uh, as There's a line, line of sight thing, I think they talk about. Yes, exactly. It and, and to make it cost efficient, you know, it has to cover a good uh, amount of territory, you know. But the East Hampton town is, is kind of in a rush to to get this done, right? I mean, the, the fear is, and they're they're doing a study too right now. They're doing a study of, of cell service in, in the town. But there's also a fear that these cell companies can come in and put up these these little mini antennas on telephone poles and stuff, right? And I don't think anybody necessarily wants that. Um, but if the town doesn't do something fairly soon, then then that's a that's a threat too, right? Well, in some ways, the smaller antennas could be better for people. It depends on, I don't know what the aesthetic is exactly, you know, but if there's a bunch of, of uh, smaller antennas that don't, uh, you know, aren't as aesthetically unpleasing and take up as much space. And, you know, if they're, if they're looked at like a utility pole, um, that could be a solution. But, you know, like I said, there is always going to be the emergency communications aspect of it, that right. there needs to be at least one megapole. It just, they're, they, they're fine, just don't put them in my backyard, right? They make my look front like yard. pine trees, like they do up in Connecticut. You ever drive down, you see <laughs> suspiciously tall, not of the species pine tree. Those are the cell Right. Well, they tried, actually. They were trying that. Uh, they wanted to put the uh, St. Peter's Chapel in Springs, wanted a tower there. And they tried, first they were going to put it in the woods and disguise it as a tree. Then they wanted to build kind of a bell tower uh, enclosure for it. And, you know, that got all shot down. I know, I think AT&T is still trying to force that to happen in court, but uh, the neighbors spoke out and the planning board denied it because people were outraged by the idea. They, they talked about that at the old Whalers Church in Sac Harbor, which of course lost its steeple in the hurricane of 38. I um, mean, it had like a 200 foot steeple and they were talking about using the, um, the proceeds from a cell tower to basically right. That's the other thing, because there is a cash component to this, like churches actually. So churches are mm -hmm. recommended in town code as a place to cite them yeah. um, and uh, others. So and then but once you have one, then you can add another and you make more men, but money by uh, renting them to cell phone companies. So that happened in West Hampton Beach it's years ago when I was. I'm sorry, say that again. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's also a good way for churches that might be struggling. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that was part of the idea. Yeah. So when I was so when I was living in West Hampton Beach years ago, they did that in, in St. Mark's Church. I had had horrible cell service in in my apartment. It was second floor apartment over the over the press office. Um, horrible service. And they put one in. You couldn't see it because it was within the the, the steeple there. The, the, the church made out. I think they. They sold space to a couple different cell companies, including the one one I was using. And from that point on, the service was just perfect. That seemed like a win, 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 win for everybody. I got better service. The church got a little money. 
Um, you know, and, and you got a cell tower there that provided better service to the village and nobody could see it. So I don't I don't know I how many that. opportunities. But how were. big was how big was it? Because the one in Springs was like a freestanding 30 foot tall one. You know what I mean? So it yeah. really depends on the individual uh, what the proposal. If they, if, if they put that one on top of the old Whalers Church and go back to 180 feet, I don't think there'd have to be any other towers anywhere for the East End. That's huge. Yeah. You know, 200 feet high. Wow. It put a lot of a lot of cell service on that, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Not, not a big uh, not a big issue in, in Riverhead, huh, Denise? I mean. Uh, well, I, I mean, there there's actually some litigation over this <laughs> issue right now going on. Um, but uh, there, there are cell antennas in uh, on various water towers uh, in the town, um, and also on private properties. And um, there's, uh, like I said, there's this litigation. There is uh, two towers that are used by one company in Calverton, and they want to erect a new tower, abandon, take down those two towers, and. The town, the town liked that idea, but the town conditioned it on there will never be towers on those other pieces of property again. And then the owners of those pieces of property said, hey, wait a minute, we have a right to put up another tower. So the town's approval was conditioned on that, that there would never be towers on these other two properties. And so now they're all in court. Yeah. Uh, whether, you know, they challenged whether this approval was, this conditional approval was, was legal because it's outside of their control. It's not their property. They were leasing the, the, the properties where the towers are today. Well, that's um, I mean, beyond, be, or beyond NIMBYism also, it's an issue out here just because there are so many historic places and environmental, there's so many like preserves and people care about the environment. So it's a particular issue finding a spot that works for everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, I think and, the church and, steeples are a really good. I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure they did that in somewhere in South Old Town. I don't know if it was Kutchog Presbyterian or there was a, a, I know it was proposed and I think it was approved that they did that with a, a church steeple in South Old. Um, I mean, that seems like a natural fit, right? Yeah. You know. But to avoid some of those issues, I mean, the property in, in East Hampton is or in Springs is owned by East Hampton Town. Right, Jamie? I mean, and, and I think that's part of yeah. why, why yeah. they're pushing exactly. the town wants to, wants to end some of the bicker, bickering and just kind of do it itself on its own town owned property. Right. I think they would have preferred if it could have gone on the property that has a Girl Scout camp just because it wouldn't have been in a fall zone in a residential area at all. But when that uh, when that uh, possibility went away, they had very few other possibilities uh, for a tower. So it's a lot of instances, uh, these the, the same areas that are pockets of lack of cell service. Also, uh, they've got a lot of issues with the uh, handheld radios when the police and EMS and firefighters are, you know, responding to calls. So absolutely, uh, those two things that's go a, hand in hand a lot of times. That's the biggest. That's issue especially in true yeah. in Springs. Yeah, it's especially true here. So. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIW 88.3. I'm Bill Sutton, Managing Editor of Express News Group, joined by my co-host, Annette Hinkle, the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. Um, our panel today, Denise Civiletti, Editor and Publisher of Riverhead Local, Ambrose Clancy, Editor of the Shelter Island Reporter, and Jamie Buffalito, Buffalino, a reporter for the East Hampton Star. Ambrose, you wanted to talk about one of our favorite subjects on, on this show, affordable housing. Um, and there was some issues on in, on Shelter Island with the community housing board there. Yeah, um, it's uh, I think it's indicative of the temper of the times that the there was a community housing board which was um, supposedly charged with finding a way to get community housing on Shelter Island. Um, one of the members of the community housing board found somewhere deep in the town code that if you're a town councilman, you can't be the committee chairman of a committee oh. or a board. And that was the case of the community housing board. Uh, the member, you know, said that the councilman had to resign, not just from the community housing board, from the, but from the town board. That eventually happened. Uh, and after that, the whole 
Community Housing Board uh, really crashed and burned. A lot of resignations, incredibly contentious meetings, uh, another town councilman, you know, telling uh, a committee member, uh, let's solve our differences outside in the parking lot. That oh. kind of thing. It was wild. Um, and as I said, the whole thing has crashed and burned now, and they're trying to begin it all over again, um, which is one of the great issues of the East End, as you said, Bill, talk about it all the time, um, that I think just with my finger in the wind, I think that at one point, most shelter islanders were pretty much in favor of uh, affordable housing. It seems to have changed now. Um, the one member who brought the whole thing to a halt, member of the committee who brought the whole thing to a halt, has said in so many words, um, if you can't afford to live here, don't live here. Huh. He also he also said that there's enough towns around Shelter Island that have affordable housing. So what do we need it for? Um, and it's um, as I said, it could be also it could be you know a sign of the temper of the times. You know these wild meetings and wild accusations and um, who knows COVID, the political climate. I'm not sure. Uh, but it, it's still reverberating on the island. Uh, what are we going to do now? What, if, if there were to be affordable housing projects on Shelter Island, how would you envision that well, taking, the, taking shape the, there? I mean, yeah, the, the, the board was doing a lot of really good work, uh, I thought. Um, they have town property that they would, uh, that a builder would build affordable housing on, um, uh, a big house with four rental units in it. Hmm. It would be designed to look like a house, uh, a, a, another house for a family with an apartment um, and that kind of thing. And the build, the town would not be the landlord. The builder would be the landlord with all kinds of caveats put into it to keep it affordable. In and perpetuity. If you it later, you can't sell it at market price. There has to be some kind of arrangement. It seems there is there is it's for sure not everyone on Shelter Island is against these ideas. Um, as we spoke earlier, Bill, um, there's a volunteer fire department. It's a volunteer emergency uh, services uh, ambulance corps um, that these people who are giving their time, they're not paid. They would be priced out and you would have to turn to a professional fire department. You would have to turn to a professional um, ambulance corps, meaning, meaning paid ambulance corps. Um, also, the other thing I think that Jamie was mentioning that, you know, people who grew up on Shelter Island, uh, went away to school, want to come back, uh, can work. They can work these days. They can work at home. They can't afford to live there. Um, there's no starter house to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an important, it's an important issue and um, tempers have frayed over it, which is unfortunate. We're gonna to have to leave it in there. We're, um, we're over time. Um, this was a fantastic show. I appreciate you all. Thank you all so much. Um, what a terrific show. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Thanks. Thanks.